I believe as journalists, it is our fundamental duty is to give voice to the voiceless and speak truth to power. And it, it just so happens that some of the most voiceless are in the AAPI community. Hello, and welcome back to Asia in Depth. I'm Christina Lee. Chances are that if you've been paying attention to the alarming rise of anti-Asian violence in the U.S., you've heard of journalist Stefan Kim. His reporting and his Twitter and Instagram feeds have become go-to sources for keeping up with updates of anti-Asian attacks in New York City and nationwide. Stefan Kim is a Korean-American reporter at ABC News in New York City. Growing up in Philadelphia, Stefan recognized from an early age that there was little representation of Asians in the media, and so he decided to embark on a career as a reporter. Now, two decades into his career, Stefan has become known for his reporting on Asian-American issues, specifically poverty within the community. Then, the COVID-19 pandemic happened, and Stefan became a crucial voice in covering the rise of anti-Asian violence. In an interview with Asia Society, Stefan recounts what it was like to report stories of violence against Asian Americans during the height of the pandemic as an Asian American himself, the importance of journalism in the era of social media, and what kinds of changes he hopes to see going forward. He speaks about all of this and more with Asia Society's Alok Kanani. Before we get started, just want to thank you, Stefan. One, one great to meet you, and thanks for, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate no it. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to start with a little bit about you and kind of your origin story, your background. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to journalism? What drew you to journalism? Um, you know, you've been a journalist for almost two decades now. Yeah. How did you get there? Well, thanks for aging me. <laughs> um, no, so my origin story, it's pretty linear. Um, once you kind of hear my upbringing, it kind of makes sense. I was born and raised in Philly, given my age, if you do the math, that's like the 1980s, 1990s. I grew up in Philly. As everyone knows, that is not a city that is subtle um, in its racism and letting you know that you are very different. I went to Catholic school around your very sort of Northeast Philly, Irish, Italian, um, and my parents raised me in a way to you know, always sort of stand up for yourself. Um, my father was involved in local politics during then Mayor Good. Uh, and pivoted into nonprofit work. My mother was a nurse for 40 years. So I like to say that they're both very civic minded. And I was very fortunate, unlike a lot of typical Asian American kids growing up, that my parents did not sort of force on me this uh, stereotypical profession, right? They, they always encouraged a line of work like this. In fact, this was kind of their idea. They saw and I saw at a very, very young age um, representation matters. Growing up again in the 80s and 90s, I looked around and recognized pretty, pretty uh, easily and readily that there was nobody who looked like me in American society and culture. And there was an obvious void. Back then, you could say it was tough to find roles of Asian American men in particular in, in Hollywood, in entertainment. And when you did, they were always con confined and constricted to the stereotypical roles that were out there. And so I had seen that not only did I see journalism as like a, a sort, sort of a true civic calling, but this was a way that I wouldn't have to be forced to play an accent, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Journalists, American journalists, broadcasters speak in perfect, clear English accents. And I've always thought as I got my, my butt kicked every other day in, in school that, hey, you know, if, um, if one of these kids maybe had their television on and that, that's, that's an antiquated <laughs> technology now or their parents had the TV on and the news was on the background and maybe an Asian man um, was delivering 
them the news of the day, that in some ways that would be sort of subliminal that, hey, like we are a part of your society. You trust me enough to, to deliver important news to you. And that if even if just having that television on in the background, the newscast on, and you know they saw that image of an Asian man, and they went to school the next day and didn't bully or taunt or you know um, pick on the other Asian kid in school, that you know that would be a monumental step forward in, in progress. So I kind of latched onto this dream early on. I would say sophomore year of high school, and um, I'm extremely stubborn, uh, real pain in the butt, and I never gave up on that dream and put myself in New York where I knew I could you know, land some internships in newsroom after newsroom throughout college. And, um, and here I am. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, in addition to like having that civic minded aspiration, you were really seeking out kind of a profession and a calling where you would be, maybe not the first, but kind of, uh, you wouldn't be around a lot of other Asian people. And like, that's pretty different, especially for someone in high school. Like, what, what was that like early on, especially when newsrooms were still, you know, famously pretty pretty non-diverse let me sort of unpack it in order um i I guess i was pretty used to being like one of only um as i described my childhood and then you know in college i enlisted in the army reserve and that was an interesting experience because you know uh i was around in basic training uh around white kids never met a black kid black kids never met a white kid imagine what they thought when they saw me right so um uh, being being the one and only in the room was never sort of thing something i shied away from and uh when i entered the news business you know it, it's a little bit of both like there is a wonderful you know embrace of diversity in in newsrooms that being said just because they they want to be diverse doesn't mean that the muscle memory is there to understand what diversity is right so i tell this story often of sort of my trajectory into WABC and ABC. Seven years ago when I was interviewing for uh, for a job, I had interviewed with practically every news director in New York and a few outside of New York. And every news director, every agent, every speech coach that I had talked to, with the exception of the, the folks who hired me at ABC, asked some version of the question, is English your first language? Right. And so I, I tell that story because um, I want to juxtapose that to my mentor, uh, my mentor, Tiwa Chang, who was the first Asian male television news broadcaster in New York. In the 80s, he had a friend of his who was a news director pop in his audition tape and he would say to him, you know, you're a good journalist. But the problem is when I see an Asian man's face on television, I think about Kung Fu. My body, my body, you know, wow. t- tenses up. Right. And so and this was a friend of his, by the way, being completely candid. And so you fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years later, I hear this comment and it's sort of like the the evolution of racism, right? I don't think that these people meant it with, you know, malicious intent. I think this is sort of my my point, right? They're not conditioned to see a face like this and, and not see the other in you. Why do you ask me this question when, you know, you would never ask someone with maybe a Southern accent who's white, blonde, right? Uh, where's the accent from? That was the other sort of version of that question I got. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is English your first language? Where's the accent from? Yeah. Um, maybe I have a Philly accent. I don't know what it is, but you would never ask that, right? And so um, that goes to show, I think, even in seven years ago, you know, 2015, that that was still being asked of me. And to your point, because there are not a lot of guys who look like me in this space. And um, funny thing is, when I heard that, it didn't even phase me. I was always reminded that I'm new. I'm, I'm the first to try this. And by the point that I heard those questions, I just thought, okay, like <laughs> it is what it is. Kind of sad that I accepted that as normal and just move forward. Yeah. 
it's assuming, you know, that's not good enough. You really have to check, you know, even if you sound American, are you really, right. uh, where'd you really come from? Yeah, right. absolutely. So things were a certain way when you began your career to aid you again. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I hope things have changed probably, probably not as much as they need to be, but things have obviously evolved. One of those evolutions also in your personal career was really started as, um, covering a, a huge range of issues and you, and you still do, but it, it was probably more of a necessity early in your career to kind of prove to yourself that I'm, I'm a journalist. I can do it all. You, you have kind of focused your career more on Asian and Asian American issues as you've kind of uh, become a, a, a bigger voice and kind of progressed in your career. What was that evolution like? And, you know, was it something you were hesitant to do? Was it a mm-hmm. natural progression? Um, talk to us about that. So, you know, this is the thing. I, I don't think that my my sort of like voice has really evolved that much since the beginning because even from 20 years ago, I've always been spotlighting things like poverty in the community, for instance, right? And the reason why I say that is because, look, I believe as journalists, it is our fundamental duty is to give voice to the voiceless and and speak truth to power. And it, it just so happens that some of the most voiceless are in the AAPI community. And so for me, that is just um, a no-brainer. It's not like I had to justify that. And frankly, the reason why we advocate for diversity in newsrooms is for this reason, right? We are all better newsrooms and we have people who represent the faces and voices in the communities in which we cover. And so uh, what would be the value in me being this different face and voice in a newsroom if I'm not going to bring to you this community who's, that's been so unheard for so long? When I interviewed at WABC, um, the assistant news director in this interview asked me a very honest question. He said, why do you think there are not more stories about the AAPI community in mainstream newsrooms. And I said to him, wow, that's a really honest question. I'm going to give you a really honest answer. I think, one, there is a very healthy level of distrust in these communities towards the mainstream media. And two, I think that distrust exists because there are not faces and voices in these newsrooms that look like that. So I I sort of get the inverse of your question sometimes. Do you hesitate to be labeled or stereotyped as like the, the AAPI guy? And I say no. I mean, why do we have to fear that, right? I don't think that that's like a like a dirty word. Like I said, this is our job, right? This we're tapping into a community that's that's an important part of our society that has not been represented. This is our fundamental job and duty to do this. And I think there's no question. I don't do API stories every day, obviously, right? I mean, I look, I cover victims of all different backgrounds. So every now and then, when when the community needs you know a voice, um, and you're there, I, I, I don't think that I've ever hesitated and thought oh boy, will I be thought of as like this pigeonholed, you know, I mean, we do enough stories every day that we can cover everyone. And this community is one that should be part of that. The goal is to have people who don't look like me cover the API community with as much passion as say, I may cover the Jewish community. Are we there yet? No, we're not. But I mean, we're getting there. And that's kind of the goal. So I think it's one thing to cover the AAPI community broadly, even to specifically focus on, on poverty, which is such a big issue, but then to start to cover hate and violence against Asian Americans. Obviously, that became a national issue and, and an issue for Asian communities. And so you had to cover it. It was it was an, an obvious shift, but you know, it, it escalates things away specifically because you're coming in less of an, an outsider there, right? You were affected by that. And you've talked about how you've been impacted by that. 
I was listening to your interview with Soledad O'Brien, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said something along the lines of, you know, I'm used to being attacked for being Asian. And this was kind of the first time I've experienced being attacked for being a journalist. And it sounds like that started to happen more. You started to cover these issues. Uh, would love to hear what that was like and how you kind of kept that barrier between journalists when you were also experiencing some of the issues you're covering. So the answer is complicated, right? I would say first off, look, a lot of journalists, is particularly when you deal with victims, and it's understandable as a defense mechanism, you you get desensitized to it, you sort of create a, a wall. It's sort of like um, an SVU detective who you know has trouble taking that home with them, and sort of so you kind of like disconnect from that. I have the opposite sort of approach to this: is that, and it doesn't matter what your nationality, your race, or what you look like. If you're a victim, if you're a human being, and my job is to tell your story, then I need to be empathetic and I need to be able to feel that pain and that trauma. And that's a heavy burden, obviously. And in this case, in particular, clearly there's some personal connection because I can relate to this. That is what I think is sort of my strength in this is that I understand where these victims come from. I don't close off the emotional trauma that that they're sharing with me because then I... I can't really fully tell their their pain and their story, but that doesn't mean that you know I'm biased in the way I present the facts. Um, that's sort of the mechanical part of it. The how the human part of it is a little bit more complicated. And I found myself every few months sort of unexpectedly being overwhelmed and kind of releasing that, and then get back on the horse and do it all over again. And I took a step back and took some time and you know um, you know did what I had to do to kind of address my own mental health, but. Uh, but in the thick of the coverage, when things were busy, it was easier to kind of ignore that, you know, because this is this is the job. It's when it's all sort of done is when you have to sort of face it. And so, right. yeah, you don't you don't control that so much. Part of that is right. You're in the field. You're distracted. You're working. You're not on social media. And then you report the story. It's live. The feedback comes. And then maybe in that downtime, you're also checking your mentions, you're seeing that. And you've talked also about how increasingly you've tried to stay out of yeah. your mentions. And, you know, social media has become this one-way one way medium for you. What's that experience been like as you've become a more prominent journalist focusing on on issues of, of anti-Asian hate? Mm. Is it is it one, I mean, if you're staying out of your mentions, you must kind of know what's in there. So what what's that like? And then does it make it harder to do your job without, you know, inundating yourself with this? Just how's that shift been? It's been both good and bad. I would say on the one hand, it's been liberating not to feel like you need to be on top of your social media, especially when, you know, there's this heightened spotlight. On the other hand, you are under this magnified spotlight. So every little mistake you make is that much bigger. Does it affect the way I operate? Not so much because frankly, like I'm a pretty traditionally trained journalist. You know, my sourcing comes from ground up, whether it's, you know, people in the community, advocates, uh, law enforcement, what you name it. Yes, there are people who reach out that way. You know, people who are victimized, for instance, would reach out through social media and direct messaging. That's, that's something I can and would check, but Otherwise, if something blows up viral on social media, like the rule of thumb is you're going to find out about it somehow, right? I don't have to be on Twitter, Instagram. If something goes viral, the newsroom will, will, will see it and then they'll tell me, hey, this is happening, right? So it hasn't really been negative, you know, adverse in the way I operate. 
um, more mental health wise, it's just been like a lot easier, honestly. Yeah. That's a, that's a good tip for, for listeners. Sifan does check his DMs. If you want to <laughs> get his DMs. Um, on the flip side of that, I mean, what do you think, you know, there's, there's been this growing role of social media to highlight these issues. I think in the last couple of years, really around, around Asian Americans, I think it's been with journalists like you taking on a bigger, bigger platform, maybe, or, or naturally having a growing platform, but also, you know, entities like NextShark kind of establishing themselves as news aggregators for this. So what's the importance of social media in shedding a spotlight on these issues? And how do you use that? Yeah, another another sort of complicated, um, good and bad, uh, both sides here. And look, NextShark, I think they do really valuable work in a, in a space that, you know, was not previously occupied. That being said, as you mentioned, they're a news aggregator. They're not journalists, right? I'll give you one example I can think of. In that year, there was a, a story that went somewhat viral about a Chinese-American elderly man in Flushing who uh, was found like, you know, his face busted in lying on the sidewalk. And, you know, this was reported by social media as another one of these attacks. And I knew from uh, law enforcement sources, in fact, a detective who was actually at that victim's bedside, that this person in particular was just extremely inebriated and had uh, passed out on the street. When EMTs arrived and put him in the stretcher, he fell out and like fell into his face. Right? It was there was no other like assailant involved here, and so you know I I did the vetting, I did the work, and look, this did not meet our editorial standard. So that's sort of like the con of this whole situation, right? The pro is they magnify the attention, but on the other hand, there is a danger of perpetuating false narratives, and this is this is a thing about like the social media, right? We learned this particularly in the past four years. Twitter is this unchecked sort of platform, which is what makes it both great and also extremely dangerous at times. That, that's why my rule with social media is whatever goes on the broadcast is what goes on social media. I try not to veer outside of that because once you relax those rules, things get kind of murky. And then you sort of delve into this gray, questionable space. And you know that the thing that's most important for us as journalists is just our credibility, right? So I try to limit that for that reason. It's interesting to hear, yeah, there's 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 the positives and negatives of social media. It's a tool, but also, of course, you have this issue of it's, it's not necessarily journalism. But in the macro, and I'm really coming at this from, uh, I would say, you know, a pretty passionate observer, but not a, a deep professional. But, you know, we saw this rise of coverage of these issues and kind of a rise of, of, of violence during the pandemic. Um, a lot of it was related and spurred by the pandemic. A lot of it was from other causes. But it seems like there's been a, a, a drop off maybe in the last half year or so, maybe in the last year of either either this problem, this rising problem of anti-Asian violence has gone away or we've just stopped talking about it. Um, which is it, I guess, starting there? So there's a two-part question. Have we stopped talking about it? To some degree, of course. Let's take this back to 9-11, right? We knew after September 11th that, you know, um, anti-Muslim sentiment was extremely high. You know, that, that was obvious. We talked about that for the subsequent years following 9-11. Do we think that that stopped? Absolutely not, right? It's not like Muslim Americans are not facing bias just because, you know, oh, we suddenly solved this. But quite frankly, like it's tied to sort of timely current events. Same thing here, right? And, and by the way, I bring this up because I was aware of that when I approached this coverage, right? I knew that there was going to be a window of time when we had your attention. 
and that after a certain cycle is passed, that this would have to evolve into sort of a different kind of presentation, if you will. Because the reality is, we cannot see grandma and grandpa getting their butts kicked every day for so long until you just tap out, right? We, we get desensitized. It's too hard to, to look at. Um, I've had plenty of advocates and friends tell me that they've had to turn off for a bit. It's a lot. And even if you are still being inundated and pummeled with this imagery that's violent and graphic, um, the conversation can't just keep going in a circle either. So I knew early on that there was going to be a certain window where I looked at this coverage as sort of stages, if you will. The first was this very sensational stage of like, hey, this is happening. You need to pay attention. And we got everyone's attention. And then I had this sort of pivots in my coverage where I would address things like how the prosecution of hate crimes, you know, how is that done? What's the inner workings behind law enforcement and DA's offices, for instance? And now I've gotten to the point where you noticed where I'm ending where I started off, right? Poverty. Because the reality is that I think Americans don't realize that the, the poverty rates in the AAPI community is alarmingly high. Once we establish that, people always ask why this happens. And the answer is people who live, communities who live in poverty, whether you're black, brown, yellow, it doesn't matter. You're all vulnerable to the same things, whether it's hunger, right, food security, access to education, shelter, violence, mental health issues. All of it, is, it's all connected, right? But it all starts with that foundation. You're living in poverty, living lives that where you struggle. You know, there's a reason why I would always mention when a particular victim, when they were attacked at three in the morning, what were they doing? Collecting cans. I'm reminding you that like, okay, okay, this person was the target of a hate crime, but why was that person even vulnerable to that? Because they're poor, because they're out there vulnerable at three in the morning collecting cans. I have, I have a question inspired by that, which is what, what you're getting at is there is this, there's almost this two... Asian Americans. Yes. And there's the one you just described living yes. in poverty collecting cans or in you know, an Indian taxi driver or whatever you have it. Mm-hmm. And then there's I think the model minority, which I think a lot of non-Asians, that's kind of all they see. Right. It's really easy, I think, to to forget about that, but, but it's it's absolutely right. The violence happens. You're right about the two API, two Asian Americans, right? I would say that what I noticed in this past year or two is that there were, I'm going to use this like as a joke, but I call it like the Harvard Asians, right? And then you have the other, right? And, and I actually think that even within the AAPI community, this wasn't an awareness that was there. There were so many AAPI who are part of that Ivy League group that did not recognize the other half. And so I think we successfully kind of bridged that gap. We can't expect others to help us if we don't help ourselves. So that's the first thing. Going back to the question I remember you asked was, is there been a drop-off in the hate crimes, right? That drop-off question is a more complicated answer, too. So I've always said that it's hard to describe what happened in 2020 as a spike because we don't know apples to apples, right? The biggest problem with hate crimes is the underreporting from victims. Suddenly, you've got a year where everyone's coming forward, but the previous year, that wasn't happening. Right? So we need a year where you can compare, okay, now people are aware they're coming forward to the following year. And so what we have seen from 21 to 22 is that if you look at last year, you know, from January to like summer, you got to a point where it kind of slowed down, but the numbers from last summer to this summer are consistent. So what that says is one, it hasn't dropped off from this point a year ago, but the question is, 
this point a year ago to six months prior, there's been obviously a dramatic, right? I think that was awareness. I think in that first six-month run, when, every, when all the API are, on, we're on edge and you're, you're thinking about this front and center, you're coming forward left and right, you know? The answer is all of this has to do with the reporting of it. Like, we don't know hate crime numbers unless the victims come forward. And obviously, we, without getting into it, we know why culturally AAPI victims are not inclined to do that. I wanted to pivot a bit to something you said earlier about, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how we keep attention on on this issue, um, because obviously there's a there's a limited attention capacity we have even amongst the community. And you mentioned how, you know, unless Asians themselves can can start to care about the sort of thing and, and really see the the other Asian America um, that no one else will. This is a broad question, but where do we start with that? Like, do you see a role for yourself in kind of uh, broadening that awareness amongst Asian Americans of these issues? I think that uh, I have a role because obviously journalists have a responsibility to raise awareness. But that being said, I have to stay in my lane. I always say this, I'm not an advocate Right. I don't. This is why you never see me hosting rallies. That's not my space. Right. I, I have a different set of ammunition. Right. And that's a set of facts and reporting, whether it's investigative journalism or whatever it is. The other so this actually three spaces, that one I've been through fact based journalism, raising questions about whether there needs to be amendments to the way state hate crime laws are written and prosecuted. I found that if you speak to prosecutors, and legislators, there's a gap. There, there's things that, uh, from a legislative standpoint, that prosecutors need more of, for instance, because these are very difficult crimes to, to prosecute. Um, and the third thing that I've been really kind of uh, highlighting is this push to mandate AAPI history being taught in public schools. So I would say that those three issues are not partisan. These are objective issues. With the hate crime legislation, I'm just raising questions. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be a hate crime. That's not my job. My job is to, to point out inconsistencies. How do you apply this to, let's say, a Jewish community versus the Asian community? There should be consistency. I think that is just, you could argue, black and white, right and wrong, right? Legislatively, right, is there, are there things falling through the cracks? That's my job as a journalist to raise that. The raising awareness of mental health issues, that's not necessarily, I would argue, a you know, an advocate's role. It is and it isn't, but as a journalist, they have a right to, you know, spotlight this. And education, I think, is, look, that's one where I have, I have received some questions about that, whether that's advocacy. And I would argue this. I mean, we teach MLK in history books in public schools during February. Why do we not teach AAPI history? The question, the first question I ask every governor and mayor is, would you agree that Asian Americans are Americans too? There's only one right answer there. It's a yes, right? Okay, we established that fact. If we are Americans, then should our history be considered part of American history? Yes. If that's a yes, why is it not taught in schools? End of story. I don't see this as a, a gray issue, right? And, and for that matter, I would say this, the impact of that, the legacy of having this stuff, this history taught to our kids is greater than I think even we understand it as. So we, we talk about this publicly that, oh, this can help educate and maybe bring two sides together. I'll make this point by bringing up an interview I did. Ashlyn So, 13-year-old, well, she was 13 at the time, she was a young fashion designer out of the Bay Area who at this point had been featured in three New York Fashion Weeks. I interview her to sort of highlight this great success. It wasn't supposed to be this, you know, traumatic Asian hate story. And she tells me that she 
dedicated her entire collection that, that fashion week to AAPI hate. And I asked her, I thought it was an obvious question, what does a 13-year-old know living in the Bay Area in, in the 2020s, right, about Asian hate? Now, here I am as a Philly kid in the 80s and 90s thinking things got to be much better, right? And she starts bawling on camera. And she tells me, you know, like, I didn't know my own history. I didn't know that I belonged. I've even in San Francisco in 2021, I faced racism. And that was jarring to me. It showed me that this history is, is also for API kids. You know, we're not different. We grew up, you know, reading about history, but we didn't see ourselves there. And it's not like it doesn't exist. The API contributions to America are, are lengthy and, and, and it's rich, but we were never taught that we belong here. And I would argue that it's a civic duty to teach ourselves that and to, to have a sense of belonging. And then once you have a sense of belonging, you can contribute to society. So I think the, the, the impact of that legacy is greater than I think we realize. And so that is one thing that I've been really sort of um, highlighting in, in my coverage. I mean, New York, we claim to be this progressive state. Like, where are you at on this? And so my job was just, just to get mayors and governors on the record. It wasn't to advocate, hey, you should do this. It's, hey, they've done it. Will you? As a journalist, it's my job to raise that question. It's almost like taking the approach of we need to Americanize the Asian American experience in several ways, both the good and the bad, both kind of how we think about Asian American hate with kind of hate crime legislation. But also, you know, if we're teaching the history of other minority groups and, of course, white Americans in schools without also teaching Asian American history, Asians will always kind of be seen as as the other. Is there almost potentially a counter risk there of... Uh, you know, the model minority status, again, for better or worse, has also protected Asians maybe in some ways. And now we see this macro trend with something like public school education of maybe uh, trying to strip away some of the history of other minority groups. You see this a lot with with Black Americans, sure. the teaching of slavery. But do you see that as a potential risk? Again, I know this is getting into more yeah. advocacy than just what's happening, but as much as you can speak to that, we'd love to hear your thoughts. The, the risk of what, um, of pushing it too far, then you sort of have like this, what we call critical race theory issue, right? Sure. Yeah. I could see, yeah. you know, uh, a potential campaign to say, you know, we, we should call internment camps, right. uh, you know, s- summer camp, whatever, you know, right. just, you know, uh, tying it into the broader care, CRT sure. or, or race theory. I can actually answer that question in a fact-based way. <laughs> Senator John Liu of New York, who is the, um, sponsor of the AAPI uh, leg- uh, history being taught in, in public schools, uh, I asked him on the record, what has taken New York so long? And he says on the record that there are Republicans in Albany who have likened this bill to critical race theory. And so I asked him, well, why did Jersey pass this so easily, unanimously a bipartisan support? And he said, because in Jersey, they already had legislation that taught Black history, for instance. And so this was just sort of an, an add-on, AAPI history. So that was a no-brainer. It's like, why would you exclude Asians if Blacks are involved and already being taught history in Jersey? In New York, that wasn't passed. There's legislation in New York that would mandate the, the Black history part of it. And because that is being opposed by Republican members of, in Albany, the AAPI part of it's being lumped into it. And the pushback is exactly that. This is according to, you know, again, the sponsor of the bill. It's being linked to critical race theory. And so I don't have to speculate. Like I know for a fact that's exactly what's holding this up. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Yeah. You know, I would love to get to some more uh, maybe optimistic parts of this, <laughs> which is, you know, we talked about your experience early on in the newsroom, kind of entering a world that was not very Asian, not very diverse at all. And, and hopefully that's changed, even if not sufficiently. But what have you seen as your time as a journalist in terms of coverage of these topics? And how was that shifted as as newsroom diversity has shifted and what's the state of newsrooms these days in in, in your view um you know that's a fantastic question um look i think we're making progress in the sense that i think newsrooms are keenly and acutely more aware of why it is important to have uh aapi faces and voices both behind the scenes and in front of the camera by the way because that's that's critically important right the reality is it's not just the face you see on on the, on the screen, but decision makers, editorial minds, and it's not necessarily just about representation, but it's about this robust discussion, right? Like when uh, you have coworkers in the newsroom who, you know, are, are authentically and genuinely interested, but don't understand the issue, you need to have other colleagues in a newsroom who can explain that in a way that's healthy. And, and so I think that there is an appetite for this more than there has been two, three years ago. On the other side, and this is by no fault to the newsroom, by the way, there's a, there's a supply and demand issue, right? So we've been asking within AAJA, which is the Asian American Journalists Association, we're not getting API faces, male or female, as many as we had, being pumped into the pipeline. And for that matter, across the board, right? Again, like we having sort of different qualifications when you see potential candidates to be a journalist in a newsroom than we saw 10, 20 years ago. And that's like a wider sort of industry struggle that we're facing. What do we do with that? Right now, suddenly we have newsrooms who want this, but we don't have necessarily the numbers to provide and fill this demand. So that's an issue that I think as journalists at AJ we need to figure out. But it's progress. It's certainly progress. So is your advice to young, uh, young aspiring Asian journalists to get off TikTok and go to <laughs> journalism school? Or, or maybe do you think maybe the, the newsrooms need to change and figure out how to... Um, the platform itself is not the issue, right? It's it's journalism. This is kind of your point. Like you can be a journalist on whatever platform you want to be on, YouTube, TikTok, ABC, whatever it is, right? But you still need the skills. You can't just expect to put a phone in your hand and go out in the street and just become a journalist. And so I think the focus is so often, and, and I think newsrooms make this mistake very often. Years ago, they'd be chasing like Facebook followers. You know, what they don't realize is Facebook, we don't own that. I mean, we don't own meta, right? You're, you're sending eyeballs and viewers to a platform that we do not own, right? And I think they're finally figuring this out. You want the viewers to be following your platform. And so I've said for years, where you see the content is less important than is the content quality, right? Like, I don't care if you see my story on Instagram, on TikTok, on abc.com, or wherever it is, but the content has to be quality journalism. You have to vet facts, you have to source it, you have to, you know, be mindful of you know, who you're protecting, for instance, victims, things like that. So, you know, the answer is, again, complicated. You know, we talked a, a bit about how there is, you know, a diminishing attention, um, including amongst Asian Americans to, to this issue. It, it's, it's kind of the supply and demand of attention. Uh, you know, as much as you want to report about these issues, you need people to care about them. What would be the one thing or, or kind of couple things that you would say the Asian American community can do more of to make sure that 
attention is continued to be paid on, on issues like this? I think um, my answer to that question is the same as if you ask me, what can we do to help? In, in general, what I think has been the most helpful thing to come out of this, and I kind of repeat what I said earlier, is you're seeing like this second generation affluent, educated AAPI community awakening to the struggles within our own community. And they're beginning to give to you know nonprofit groups or advocacy groups that address these issues. You provide the funding and resources necessary to, to be that support system for those members in the community falling through the cracks. But through that support, that helps awareness. Because where do you think journalists, traditional journalists, get a lot of this sourcing from? On the ground. There's a myriad of ways that some of this stuff is brought to my attention, but a lot of it is advocacy groups that do just that, that that help a victim who may need interpretation, translation services, or maybe they're afraid of immigration status, whatever it is. And they have relationships with us and they say, hey, you know, I've got someone who um, we need to highlight their story and can raise awareness that's sort of larger issue around this one individual's situation. And so you can kind of accomplish both that way. If we just support the, the groups that already exist, they've been doing this for decades, and there's been a select group in the community that's always been devoted to this, but we're finally sort of broadening this out, and we know that there are two halves. We know there is an affluent you know, subset of this community out there, and they want to help. They want to give. They just haven't known until now that this was a need, and where do they give that, you know, that support to? So I think that's the answer. <laughs> 